Is it okay to ask God why? Is it acceptable to question God, especially when you're going through a time of pain or a time of suffering? Good morning. My name is Matt Friend. I'm the senior pastor here at Bible Center Church. And in 15 years of pastoral ministry, a lot of people have asked, Matt, is it okay for me to ask God why? And the answer to that question is clearly yes. It is acceptable. It's normal. It's not a sin for you to question God. You say, well, how can you be so sure? Well, the answer is in Matthew 27. If you remember Jesus hanging on the cross, he asks his father why. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Asking God why is part of what it means to be human. And sometimes he gives us the answer and sometimes he doesn't. But I believe there are many of you this morning who are going through suffering and pain and you're wondering where is God in the middle of all of this and why is he allowing me to go through it? Where is God in the middle of this job loss or this downsizing? Where is God in the middle of my drowning in credit card debt? Where is God in the middle of my aches and pains or my loneliness because somebody I love is no longer here? Where is God in the middle of this dispute I'm in the middle of at work? Or, or where is God with this burden I have for my kids? Where is God with this addiction I'm wrestling with? Or, or where is God in the middle of an addiction somebody I love is wrestling with? This morning, I want to encourage you I want to challenge you to come with your questions. And we're going to dive into Colossians 1, and I hope you'll ask God why. I believe there are some this morning that if you don't get answers, you may be this close to quitting on God. Maybe you've been tempted to quit on church or quit on life, even life itself. And so I'm praying that this morning's message speaks to you in a very specific way. Maybe you're here today and you're not going through any trials. You're not going through any suffering at all. And my prayer is that today won't be like the speech the flight attendant gives before you get on the, uh, the flight. You know, they're talking about the seatbelts and turbulence. Nobody ever listens to that speech until you hit turbulence. I mean, if you're really good, you can learn how to like, take your seatbelt off the whole flight without the flight attendant knowing. But as soon as you hit turbulence, you're wondering, where's the seatbelt? Where's that little placard? What do I do when those things fall out of the ceiling? So if you're not going through suffering today, my prayer is that you'll make some notes, some mental notes, maybe even some notes on a piece of paper or in your Bible that you can have when you do hit turbulence and the suffering does come. Today we're going to look at five reasons that we suffer from Colossians chapter 1. And at the end of the message, I'm going to encourage you again to ask God why. And I pray that he'll begin to give you answers as we go verse by verse through Colossians chapter 1. Please stand with me out of respect for the Bible. Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn in your Bible or your Bible apps, I'll read. I invite you to follow along. Starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding 
and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In him, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good character and firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A common question in university classrooms or even in philosophical discussions goes something like this. If God is all-powerful and if God is all-loving, why does he let me suffer? This is called the trilemma, not a dilemma, but a trilemma. It takes these three truths, and some would say that it's the, uh, it's the experiential argument against God. Christians believe in a powerful God. Christians believe in a loving God. Christians believe that suffering actually exists. Therefore, what Christians believe must be a hoax. But the question that you can ask when somebody challenges you with the trilemma is this. Why does it have to be a trilemma? Why can't it be a quadlemma, if there is such a thing? Why can't it be a quintalemma or so on? Why do we just limit it to these three truths? You see, often in arguments, people want to limit God to one truth or two truths or, or three, but there's so much more about God that he is wise. He is sovereign. He's creating all things new. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan. He is good. There's so many more truths that have to be brought to the table to have an intellectual discussion. And so what I want to do in the next few minutes is bring some more of those truths to the table. The Apostle Paul brings those truths to the table and allows us to see a bigger picture for why we suffer like we suffer. Number one, why does God let me suffer? First of all, my suffering helps me understand the world's suffering. My suffering helps me understand the world's suffering. In verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister. The Apostle Paul is writing this to the church at Colossae, a church that he didn't plant, but somebody that he led to Jesus went back to Colossae, planted this church, and Paul is writing to them almost like a spiritual grandfather, and he is saying, I suffered so that you could hear the gospel. It wasn't like the Apostle Paul to brag on himself or to try to make himself look good, but evidently the false teachers were saying a lot of horrible things about him. And so he would write to several of the churches and explain the suffering that he's endured. In other words, I'm not going through this because I'm getting wealthy. I'm not going through this because I'm getting popular. I'm going through this. I'm laying down my life because I love you and I love the gospel. If you're taking notes, you can write down 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In that one chapter, we find that Paul was whipped five times, 2 Corinthians 11. He was beaten with rods three times, shipwrecked three times. He was stoned, robbed, suffered hypothermia. He was snake bit, lied about, talked about, forgotten about. And even as he's writing this letter, he's writing it from a Roman prison. So he knows what suffering is. And he tells this church, I have suffered on your behalf. Why did Paul suffer everywhere he went? Oh, there's a lot of reasons. One reason is the Romans hated him. He was preaching that Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord. And so that got him into a lot of trouble, eventually got him executed. But he was also in trouble with the Jews because he was preaching that the gospel had created this new family of God. He had, that the gospel had created believing Jews and believing Gentiles and had put them together in what's called the church. And over and over again, he says there is no wall of division between them. 
In other words, God doesn't love the Jewish believers any more than he loves the Gentile believers. And the Jews of his day hated this. How could you say this? This was heresy. It was blasphemy. And the false teachers saw his suffering as proof that he was doing something wrong. You can just almost hear them. Paul, there's a, there's a hole in your ship. There's a hole in your boat. Therefore, something must be wrong with what you're teaching and preaching. And Paul says, no, it's the opposite. The fact that there is opposition and there is suffering shows that I'm doing something right. You know, they say when you throw a rock in a pack of wolves, the one that comes after you is the one you hit. And Paul knew what it was like to suffer for the gospel. In verse 24, what does he mean? I'm going to call time out just for a second. Verse 24 is the hardest verse, in my opinion, in the New Testament to translate or understand, to explain. So I'm going to do my dead level best. Uh, even Peter, when he wrote about the Apostle Paul, he said that Paul is hard to understand in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if the Bible says that Paul's hard to understand, I'm just going to go ahead and lay it out here. This verse is hard to understand. But I think if we can see it in a certain light, it really uh, becomes much easier. In verse 24, he says, there is something lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Let that settle in your heart a bit. There is something lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Let me say what it doesn't mean. This does not mean that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was insufficient to save you. If verse 24 means that his death, burial, and resurrection weren't enough to save you, then the rest of the New Testament is bogus. For throughout the New Testament, we find that Jesus suffered once for all, Hebrews chapter 10. We find in the book of Romans that the death of Christ was sufficient and efficient for, for all who believe in Christ. You going to church doesn't make God love you anymore and help you slide into heaven. You doing good works in the community doesn't say, well, I'll, God, I'll put you over the edge. That's not how it works. But the entire New Testament teaches us that for our salvation, for our way that we are made right with God, it's all of Jesus and none of us. So why does he say in verse 24, something's lacking in Christ's suffering or afflictions? Well, the answer is in last week's sermon. If you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's sermon, I seldom invite you to do that. But I'm learning as I'm going verse by verse through Colossians that each message builds on the next. And last week we talked about how there are two salvations mentioned in Colossians chapter 1. There's where God saves us from sin, God saves sinners, and that's the salvation we're most accustomed to the salvation that allows me to be right with God and go to heaven. But we learned last week there's a second salvation in the scriptures, and God talks about this great day that he is going to save the earth and the heavens and create a new heavens and a new earth and reconcile all things to himself. Romans chapter 8 talks all about it. He is going to make all things new. He is saving planet earth. He's saving the universe. So if we take the first view of salvation and say, well, you know, I've got to do more to earn salvation, we've completely contradicted the rest of scripture. But if we see it in light of the second salvation, we understand that all Paul is saying is this, God promised suffering. It began with Jesus and it will continue until Jesus comes again. And he is saying that that suffering did not end with Jesus. It wasn't the only suffering, but it just started with him. And so in that sense, when God says there's going to be suffering, Jesus' suffering was just the beginning. It, it lacked what we are going to experience until he returns. One commentator wrote this. The early Jews had a legend about the coming of the Messiah. 
you can read it about it in the book of First Enoch. This may be the only time in my 30 years here that I ever quote the book of First Enoch, but it's there. If you're new to Christianity, it's not in the Bible, but it's just an extra book. They believed that in the years before the Messiah came, the world would suffer greatly. They believed God had a bowl of wrath or suffering with a predetermined amount that had to be poured out on the world. When the bowl emptied, the Messiah would return. Paul uses the image here to say, I'm absorbing some of that suffering so you don't have to. It's the same idea as a parent saying, if I could take the suffering for my child, I would. Paul is suffering in this age just like God had promised. If you want to study more of this, if you're taking notes, you can write down Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38, Daniel 12, Matthew 24, and Mark 13. Daniel, Matthew 24 and Mark 13. I like to think of the suffering of our age a lot like a check engine light. You know, some of you, when you see the check engine light, you instantly call the mechanic. You call Chuck Britt or whoever else that you know in the church or in the community, and you say, what's wrong with my car? For the rest of us, we kind of learn to ignore our check engine lights. Like, oh, if I put a sticker over that, then maybe it'll go away. But check engine lights are there for a reason. They warn us that something else is wrong or maybe drastically wrong. I read this week a New York, New York Times article about a girl named Ashlyn Blocker. Ashlyn Blocker, this article I think came out in 2016. She lives just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And she has a disease that doesn't allow her to feel pain. It's called SEPA, where she has congenital insensitivity to pain. And in the article, her parents described the time she broke her ankle. And she broke her ankle and was able to still run and play. And they're looking at it wondering, how does this not hurt? But she doesn't feel pain. When she was two years old, her dad was using the pressure washer outside the house, or as they say here in West Virginia, the pressure washer. And, and, and she took her, her hands and put them on the hot engine and burnt the skin right off of both hands. And as a two-year-old girl, she didn't cry because she has this rare disease. And this concerns her parents as she's getting older now and now in high school going off to college that she's always got to be on guard, that she's not hurting herself majorly because she doesn't feel pain. Pain actually is a gift from God to help us know that something is wrong. When we see earthquakes and hurricanes and wars and rumors of wars, these are actually gifts from God to remind us this life isn't the end. The gospel is true. Something is drastically broken, and one day Jesus is going to fix it. And so my suffering reminds me why the world suffers. Number two, my suffering helps the, helps the world see Jesus' suffering. My suffering helps the world see Jesus' suffering. It's another aspect of the same verse. Here in verse 24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up, I'm completing. He uses that image of the bowl. I'm filling up, completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. My suffering helps the world see Jesus' suffering. The people at Colossae, could never see Jesus die on the cross. I guess it's possible that some of them may have been present, but they were separated by great distance and separated by decades in time. So Paul's writing and saying, you can't see Jesus' suffering, but you can see my suffering. And in seeing my suffering, you're catching a glimpse of Jesus' suffering. In Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the, and the fellowship, or may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
I was telling a friend this morning that I'm preaching on suffering, and it's one of the hardest things to preach on, especially when you know very little of it in your life. I'm 37 years old and haven't experienced a lot of suffering. Um, the extent of my health problems goes to uh, hypothyroidism. I take Synthroid every morning, 175 micrograms. I jokingly say that if there's ever an apocalypse and there's a rush on the pharmacies, I'm not looking for all the illegal stuff. I just want my Synthroid, and I'm good. I'm good to go, keeping an eye on the news. Uh, I have a little bit of um, hypoglycemia in that as long as I eat fruits, vegetables, meats, and nuts, I'm usually okay. My mom is hypoglycemic. My dad is diabetic. And so I just know that if I eat simple sugars, I'm going to sweat profusely. And I've gotten pretty good about knowing when to do it and when not to do it. That's why for breakfast, I just eat protein and vegetables and those kind of things. But the other night, we had the member meeting, and, and I just I love Cheerios. I, just, I don't know if I've ever confessed that before, but I love Honey Nut Cheerios. And I had, like, when I eat Cheerios, I don't just eat, like, one bowl. I usually eat, like, four. And there's no gluten in them, and so you can just pound them all day long. And, and so I had, like, four bowls of Cheerios, and I go to the new member uh, class, and I was going to teach. And I'm teaching on the gospel, something that I love. And I'm sweating like I'm playing a basketball game. And people are looking at me like, what is wrong with you? And I had to stop. And anyway, that's, for, that's not part of the sermon. Um, but I haven't experienced a lot of suffering. But I'm learning that even in ministry, there's emotional suffering. And God's using it to begin to slowly strengthen my muscles, my ministry muscles, for who knows what the Lord has for me or for you in 20 or 30 years. Uh, this past week, I had probably the hardest discussion, uh, the hardest for an hour I had to listen to, I had the privilege of listening to someone tell me uh, what was wrong with me and what was wrong with our church and what was wrong with all of our staff, naming people's names. And I sat there and listened to it, and afterwards I, I prayed, and I went home, and for the next 24 hours, my whole body hurt. I'm, I'm a wimp. I'm a pansy. I, I could hardly get out of bed the next morning. I just hurt. And I hurt because I was thinking about all that they had said and the motives and the questions, and, and I thought, if I believed what you believed, I would hate me too. I would hate the church. I'd hate Christianity. But that's just what God uses. So I went back and thinking about earlier in the week how I had prayed. Um, I don't always do this, but in verse, I was really struggling with verse 24 on Monday. And so I got in my office and got on my knees and said, Lord, show me what you mean by verse 24. Show me what it means to feel the feelings of death for the good of other people. What it means to absorb the suffering of the cross. And yesterday, a friend reminded me when I was explaining a little bit about that conversation. He said, Matt, God was just doing for you what you prayed he would do. You got to experience the sufferings of the cross in a small way. And I thought, Lord, if I ever preach on martyrdom, I will never pray that prayer. <laughs> Lord, I don't want to know what that's like. But some of you parents know what it's like to want to absorb and want to receive the pain of your children. And God says, this is how we show Jesus. Some of you have been taught that suffering is only for the bad Christians. Maybe you came from a church where they taught you that if you really have faith, you'll never suffer. But if you suffer, you must have a lack of faith. But actually, the scriptures teach something completely opposite. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the story about two houses. And he says, one man built his house on the rock and the other man built his house on the sand. But the parable does not say that the waves only hit the house on the rock. But the parable says the waves hit both houses. If you love Jesus, you are going to suffer and the waves are going to hit your life, and you are going to feel like, can I hang on? I've got good news this morning. You don't have to hang on to God because God will hang on to you. And when the suffering comes, you can say, Lord, help me to show my neighbors, help me to show my family, help me to show my staff, help me to show my church, help me to show my friends that this is what Jesus looks like. 
Jesus isn't plastic. Jesus didn't walk around with his nose in the air. Jesus suffered. So if you're suffering, suffer well. Show me what it looks like to suffer. So if I ever go through what you're going through, I'll have a man or woman to look to. My suffering helps the world see Jesus' suffering. Number three, my suffering helps the church grow deeper and wider. My suffering helps the church grow deeper and wider. Verse 25, he says, Of which I, Paul, became a minister according to the stewardship from God. Paul's about to explain here why he suffers. This is why he became a minister. He says he has a stewardship from God. That's the word for administration, uh, rich uh, landowners, uh, wealthy politicians in Paul's day would, would have staffs within their home. Um, maybe you know someone who has a, a staff of an administrator, somebody who goes to the grocery store for them or pays their bills or runs their house, which is perfectly understandable uh, when you're running empires. But he says in verse 25, my purpose, this stewardship from God was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul's desire that the word of God would go farther in the hearts of his people and in the hearts of people in the city of Colossae. In verse 26, he talks about a mystery. He uses words that they would have understood. The Colossians were being tempted by false teachers about this mysterious knowledge. And so he's constantly throwing jabs, saying, hey, you're looking for a mystery. Let me tell you about a mystery uh, verse 26, there's a mystery that was hidden for the ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. What is the mystery? He's going to tell us in verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory. The idea of Gentiles becoming believers in God was not a new concept. Throughout the Old Testament, God said that Gentiles were invited. Gentiles actually even had a place in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Uh, Gentiles could become believers in God Almighty. But the concept that there would ever be a day that God would put together this body, this church, made of Gentiles and Jews alike, and there's no division between them, that God's presence would live with Gentile believers, just like he lives with Jewish believers, was heretical. It was appalling. And so in context, he says in verse 27, Hey church, Christ is in you the hope of glory. It used to be that God only lived in among the Jewish people in the tabernacle. The fire would fall, the pillar of cloud, the, the pillar of fire, and the cloud by, by day, and the fire by night. God lived with the Jews, but now he says something more amazing has happened. God actually lives within his people, whether they be Jew or whether they be Gentile. Again, if you're taking notes, verse 27, when he says Christ in you, that's plural. So really it's Christ in you all. Or, if you're from around here, Christ in y'all. The hope of glory. In verse 28, he gives his ministry philosophy. He says, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone. Now, everyone's going to be repeated three times in this verse. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul's emphasis, his ministry philosophy is spelled out here. We see that he put a premium on preaching. He says in verse 28, we proclaim Christ. This is why for 2,000 years, part of coming together in the church always involves some type of a sermon or a lesson. It's proclamation. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon said this, the greatest way to worship God is to listen to a sermon. And I jokingly say, well, that's because he was a pastor, of course he's going to say that. 
Uh, but still, it's part of the worship of God. What is preaching? What is my job? Paul says, you've got, Matt, you've got two jobs in verse 28. To warn and to teach. Both are involved in preaching. Preaching is not the same as teaching. It involves teaching, but it also involves warning, saying hard things, giving challenges, giving encouragements. But again here, three times he uses the word everyone. Paul wanted everyone to be saved. Specifically, he wanted everyone in Asia Minor or in the city of Colossae to be saved. Make no mistake. It is our desire at Bible Center Church that everyone in Charleston hears the gospel and is saved. That is our desire. You say, why did you add the word more to your mission statement? Our mission statement is beautiful. It has been for years. Our desire is to glorify God by producing maturing followers of Jesus. And last year, we added the word more in front of maturing. Because what we want to say is, it's both. We never want to be satisfied with where we are as a church. Never. We want to move forward and grow larger so that we can plant more churches, maybe one day more campuses, that we can reach more people and more neighborhoods for Jesus. If we want to compare a church to a boat... Some like to compare church to a cruise ship. I've never been on a cruise, frankly, because I'm scared of water. Uh, but I have been on like what we call land cruises, where you go to a vacation like Cancun. It's all inclusive. It's like a cruise, just without the water. Um, but vacations are awesome. Sometime we'll go through the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, it says it's good to go to the house of feasting. That's my favorite verse when I'm on vacation. It's good to go to the house of feasting. This past summer, we were down in Florida where uh, the cruise ships come in and out of Cape Canaveral, and they were just majestic. I cannot believe how big they are and scare you to death uh, when you're laying on the beach, but beautiful. But this is great for vacation, but it's not a picture of the church. Here at Bible Center Church, I want us not to think of like we're on a cruise ship just floating by till we get to heaven. If that's what you're looking for in a church, this is not the church for you. But instead, the picture here is that we're more like a, a warship. God calls us, a, a nice Viking scene there, God calls us to row together, to fight together to push forward together so that more people can hear the gospel. What will happen when they hear the gospel? He tells us in verse 28, it's not the end that they simply believe the Romans road or believe in Jesus, but in verse 28, he wants them to mature in Christ. This is why we have teaching and preaching and workshops and community groups. And outside, we have this guide that Pastor Mike wrote for the Colossians series. And if you go on the website, you can download for free 15,000 videos from Right Now Media. It's because we love teaching and preaching and instruction. And God invites us to grow not only wider, but deeper in the Lord. How will we do that? Verse 29 is the how. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We struggle by the energy of Christ. How are we going to be a church that Charleston can't live without? It's not because we strategize. It's not because we're smart. It's definitely because we're not. Your staff isn't good looking. But it is because we trust with you in the power of Jesus to reach lives with the gospel. That's how we will do it. Paul said his suffering was a way to see the world's suffering. His suffering was the way for the world to see Jesus in him. His suffering was a way for him to grow deeper and wider with the church. But quickly, there's two more ways. Number four, 
My suffering helps me relate to other Christians. My suffering helps me relate to other Christians. Chapter 2, verse 1. He's still in this same thought. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face. So we're back out here to this struggle. Paul, why did you struggle? Why do we expect to struggle? He says that your hearts, their hearts, may be encouraged, knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. In verse 1, the word struggle is the word agonize. Paul says, I agonize. It's it's the word of an Olympic athlete. Why do they discipline themselves? Why did Paul do this? Because he says in verse 2, he wanted their hearts to be knit together in love. He wanted them to encourage one another. Our culture says we're individuals. We can run by ourselves. We're lone rangers. But God says, no, through your suffering, I'm going to weave you together. Just like your muscles are almost woven throughout your body, God says, I'm going to weave you together through your suffering so you learn that you need other people. Now, sometimes suffering has the reverse effect, but most of the time, have you noticed that whenever you suffer, how much more sensitive your heart can be to the things of God? I remember once in college, this has been a few years ago, I remember uh, getting upset with the way the Lord had orchestrated some things in my life. And I'm in Bible college learning to be a pastor, right? I'm like 20 years old. And I remember getting so mad, I told the Lord, Lord, I'm not going to pray for a while because God, I am mad at you. Now, I would advise you not to do that, right? Like, don't do it. And, and, And actually, he let me get by for about three days, about three days, I, I, I just, was just upset at something in my life, something I wanted, and, and I wasn't getting it, and I was mad at him and mad at life and hating life and hating school, and I just wasn't going to pray. And so at the end of the third night, I worked at a machine shop, and it was about 10.30 at night. I'm on my way home, and I had gotten so sick. I don't know what, it's something I ate, or who knows, he knows. And I got so sick that I had to pull off the side of the road on the way back to my dorm. This was just shortly before I was married. And I'm on my hands and knees beside Highway 74 outside of Shelby, North Carolina. And I am, you know, doing what you do when you're sick beside the highway on your knees. And after I finished doing what you do when you're sick beside the highway on your knees, I realized where I was. I was on my knees. God loved me so much to give me just a little taste of suffering, to soften my heart to his love and his grace, which in turn spreads to others, showing them love and showing them grace. Could God be doing that in your life today? Could the Lord be using your suffering to help you better love your children, to love your spouse, to love the church, to let God do his work and show us what it means to suffer well as he knits our hearts together in love? The last reason we suffer is in verse 4. My suffering helps me remember what's really important in life. Verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This is where we're going to go next week. I can't wait for next week. Next week we're going to dive into Colossians 2, and he's going to tell us these two big arguments that people were bringing against the church and causing them to question. They have a lot to do with angels and demons, and and then eventually we're going to get to legalism. And he said, there's all these arguments that are coming against you. But he says in verse 5, though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit. He's already told him he's suffering for them, but he says, I rejoice to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. If you're underlined, you can underline the words good order and firmness. These are both military words. Good order was a Greek word used of military strategy and formation. Soldiers would line up in a certain formation before they go into battle. And Paul says, your suffering and everything that's happened to you is to teach you how to be a good soldier for the fight. 
strengthening your spiritual muscles so that not only you can be in a right order within the church, but that you can have firmness in your faith in Christ. This Greek word was used of soldiers who would dig their heels in before a battle, perhaps on the front line, ready to go at their enemy. And Paul says, this is going to help you, make you stronger in the fight. It's going to give you firmness in the faith. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's the question or the argument that's really at stake here in Colossians chapter 1. The answer to that question is simple. It's only happened one time in human history to one person, and that person volunteered. Think about it with me. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's only happened one time in human history to one person, and that person volunteered. Jesus Christ is the only baby ever born without a sin nature, without giving in to sin. Jesus is the only one who this never bore the sin of Adam and his actions and his heart and his choices. Jesus is the only one who could be the perfect man. And as the perfect man living the perfect life, he died the perfect death to pay for sins you and I could never pay for. He was buried and he rose again the third day to give you life. And so when we say, why do bad things happen to me? What if we switched our focus and said, why do any good things happen to me? I know my heart. I know who I am in the dark. I know choices I've made, things I've said, thoughts I have thought. Why would God be gracious to let any good thing happen to me? The reason is because Jesus took our sin so that we could have God's grace. And Paul writes to remind this church, it is all about Jesus. Have a high view of Jesus. Put him first in your life. He is victorious. Jesus wins. Remember that in every detail of your suffering. What's the main encouragement today? What's the main challenge? It's simply this. Look for God's purpose in your pain. Look for God's purpose in your pain. I'm encouraging you today to ask God why. It might be that you take the notes of this sermon this week and you find a quiet place and you work through them in a quiet spot. It may be that you just read the book of Colossians over and over this week and say, Lord, show me specifically what purpose do you want me to experience in my pain it may be that you read the book of Job, and God may not tell you specifically in the moment why you're suffering, just like he didn't with Job until after the fact, but God can give you a higher purpose, knowing that you're his child and he's in charge. Maybe for you, it's going to coffee with a friend, going to lunch with a brother or sister in Christ, and just sharing your suffering. You've been putting on the, the, the mask, which we all do because we're, we're scared at times to share. We don't want to look weak, especially we as men. But you share with a friend. You share with a brother. Maybe it's you schedule a counseling here with Bible Center Counseling, and you share with somebody else, hey, I'm going through this. Here at the end of this message, we're going to look through Hear the words of, it is well with my soul. Maybe you take the next few minutes and you ask in quiet moments, Lord, show me what is your purpose in my pain. In a second, we're going to sing or hear the words to, it is well with my soul. And this week, I learned the story behind how the song was written. Some of you have heard it. In the 1800s, Horatio Spafford wrote the song after the tragic death of his four daughters. In 1871, as a businessman and lawyer in Chicago, the Chicago fire came through, destroyed his business, and the same year he lost his little son to pneumonia. Two years later, he was sending his family over to France. 1873, the boat on which they were sailing, 300 passengers, 
263 died because of a collision with another boat. His wife, Anna, had traveled with those four daughters. She'd been knocked unconscious. When she woke up and was rescued, her four daughters were gone. Nine days later, she arrived in Wales and she telegraphed Horatio about what had happened. And she said, saved alone. Saved alone. He gets on a boat and four days out to sea, the captain calls him to the front and shows him the place, the best he could understand where his four daughters drowned. It was said that at that moment, God gave him the words, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I don't know why you're suffering, but it might be that God will use your suffering to help see the the world's suffering in a new light. It might be that God will use your suffering to show the world Jesus' suffering in a new light. God could use your suffering to grow this church deeper and wider. And God could use your suffering to knit hearts together. And God could use your suffering just to remind you of the important things in life. Whatever it is, look for God's purpose in your pain. Let's bow for prayer. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to invite you to take this moment as Cindy sings our closing song and reflect on the words of it is well with my soul. If God's inviting you, calling you to put your faith in him, I'm going to be out in the gathering space, out in the lobby after the service. A number of our pastors will be around, but just simply stop by and grab me and say, hey, I want to know more about what it means to follow Christ. I'd be happy to meet with you today or one day this week. Christian, as she sings, let these words wash over your soul and ask God to give you his grace in your suffering. Through it all.